Welcome to Money in the Air, the music podcast about neighboring rights, the royalties you earn from the public performance of your recordings and the business of music in general. Brought to you by IFR, the International Association for Artists and Rights Holders. I'm Andrew, a royalty consultant helping artists to collect on their value. Hi, I'm Gina Deacon. I work for Absolute Rights Management and I work with record labels and artists to ensure we claim the royalty income due to them. I'm Stacey Haber and I'm from Inside Baseball Music Publishing. Hi, I'm Tanya Oliveira. I work for Transparency Entertainment Group. I focus on World X USA neighboring rights on the performer side and rights holder side. Hey, welcome back to Money in the Air, the neighboring rights podcast brought to you by IFR, the International Association for Artists and Rights Holders. And today we have guests with us. We're going to talk about trusts and estates, wills and codicils. Kevin, Peter, give us an idea of what you do and who you are, please. Well, thanks for the invitation. I'm Kevin Parks. I'm a partner with Soundtracker. We are neighboring rights collecting agency, working for labels and artists based in the U.S., where I'm sitting in Chicago. And my partner, Pete Sadler, is also on the call, and he's sitting just outside of London in Windsor. Hey, Stacey. Nice to meet you. Thank you for the invite to to join this conference call today. It's great. We're based in North America, as Kevin said, and we look after many clients and independent labels and their neighboring rights and digital royalties from the USA and Canada and various other places, including a number of beneficiaries of estates as well. So we're particularly interested in this podcast and thank you for inviting us. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm so glad that you're here. How did you get started in neighboring rights? Well, I'm a copyright attorney by trade and been practicing in the copyright and trademark area for a number of years and developed a specialty in music copyright. And I've written and taught in that area also for a number of years. And I ran a a label in Chicago for a period of time. And it was in that connection that I first understood, this is in the late 90s and the early 2000s, when the performance right for sound recordings in the U.S. was first coming to pass. And so I got acquainted with this new right and royalty stream at that point in time, started working on behalf of my own label and collecting those royalties. And eventually that expanded into other clients as well. And now if we fast forward 20 years or so, I'm I'm semi-retired from the practice of law and starting to pay more attention to my passions, including music and collection of royalties for a number of clients on the label side and the featured artist side as well. So it's been a gradual thing for me that has stemmed from my copyright practice. We'll deep dive now into trust and estates. Um, The reason in most of the world that it must be mentioned specifically in a will or a codicil is because under the Rome Treaty, it's an inalienable right, meaning it cannot be waived, sold, or given away in order for the beneficiaries to inherit neighboring rights in a Rome Convention country. It has to have its own paragraph. It's not part of a residual estate. Not necessarily true in the U.S., but if you want for the rest of the world, we need to make it clean. There is a codicil form on the IFR website that anyone can use for clients who already have a will, or that can be taken and lifted and put into a will if you're drafting it fresh. Gina, do you have anything to add about your experiences with the passing of a client? I've dealt with one. And yes, it was traumatic with PPL and extensive, and it went on for a long time. 
did you manage to get it done through PPL or did you have to go to another country? We got it done through PPL. What kind of documents did you have to supply to them? We had a copy of the will. We had a copy of all the details of the estate and who the money should go to. So it was quite intensive and quite sensitive data. How long did it take? I'm going to say about eight months. I've done PPL quite a lot and the same similar experience to Gina. Um, it takes about eight months, especially if they're an American performer, because even the, when you give them the death certificate, the will, everything's very clean. There's a lot of back and forth. So yes, correct. I go to Canada, very, very quick and easy and seamless to set up. We go through Actra Racks. That's the performer SEMA that we use. And across Europe, uh, GVL from experience are very quick and easy enough. As long as you have yet yeah, the will and a copy of the death certificate. However, saying that quite a few European countries, if you're providing just a copy of the will and not a codicil that's very explicit, and there's like a widow, and then, for example, this is one, like, and there's seven children listed, then the CMO need paperwork signed by all eight heirs, and that's a lot to organise, which is why the codicil is just, it would bypass a lot of that. Would it have been quicker if each of those wills had mentioned neighbouring rights, equitable remuneration, related rights specifically? I think so, yeah. I don't know for sure, but I think so. Okay. So it's possible to slog through those situations if you have enough patience and you have enough other documentation, you might be able to slog through without the specific codicil language. But that's a hard row and it just smooths things over if you're able to have this specific language in the documentation. The PROs aren't any different really in the States. They'll need you to go through probate if somebody dies in test date and therefore is not named specifically for public performance royalties in the songwriting. It's not that much worse than publishing, but it's just so simple to put this language in a will or to draft a codicil and append it to the will. There's really no reason not to do it. Although having said that, I have friends who are younger than me, older than me, same age, just will not do their wills. I've given them the templates. I've filled them in. No matter what I do, they just don't want to think about dying. I think it's such a sensitive subject as well, isn't it? And how do you approach them? How do you contact somebody and say, probably got a will in place. Have you thought about popping in this paragraph as well? It would really help in the long run, you know, for the rest of your family, which is so true. It would. But how do you have that conversation? You just do. I call up the clients and I say, I love you. I love your children. Please do not let these royalties go astray. Please do not neglect them. We need to take care of your kids. You make it about their kids, they'll do anything you ask. And also, it's not, not talking about it doesn't make it real. Just because you don't talk about it or make it real doesn't mean you're not going to die one day. I don't know. Maybe I'm missing the point and I should be freaking out about it. But I've always had a will. You just do it. The way that we've approached it is to be, as Stacy says, be straight and open as it can, you possibly can be with a little bit, little bit of, I, I have to say, scare tactics in there. Because, you know, if there's, if there's no specific wording or no specific beneficiary, then this money won't necessarily not just go to their beneficiaries that they wish, but it may be held intestate for a long time and even frozen by regulatory agencies. You know, you just don't know where this money's going to end up. Why not say to them, hey, you know that trust fund you opened for your grandchildren? Why not do this codicil and they could have this money too? Say it with that face and, you know, yeah, make you more excited. 
Yeah, it's much better to put a positive spin on things instead of instead of negative. I quite agree. We're trying to sign up an heir, and his father, the performer, was known for not organizing his affairs. There was no will. There was no real trust and estate, you know, documentation of any kind. And so now we're we're trying to pick up the pieces of of all that. And you know, with the rest of the estate, it's a mess. But we're trying to put our little piece of it together, and it's a struggle. And we're working very closely with with the probate solicitor. And even when we have definition of the beneficiary as defined by that process. We still then have to start that laborious process, as everybody's mentioned, with sound exchange and PPL and and everybody else concerned, too, to go through that. And not least, you know, the number of notarized documentation we need and affidavits from various lawyers on both sides of the Atlantic. Ah, so this is a transatlantic thing. This one particularly is, but, you know, it's it's we've had to do similar things just for a UK artist in the UK and also a UK artist in, in North America. In some ways, North America is easier because the US isn't a signatory. And some states, if the estate is less than 50 grand, have, or whatever the threshold is, small estate affidavit processes online where you don't even have to go to court. I don't know of any that exists here like that. It depends where the performer died, but sometimes you could get lucky by it being in America. And sometimes there is a benefit to it not being a signatory. That's correct. And if you can imagine a situation where a British artist dies in Germany, and then we have to try and collect that money in the US, then it gets that much more complicated with documentation collection, etc. But once you have the US probate document, you should be halfway down the road in Germany. Was that not the case? That was. It's actually quite clear cut. We were actually thinking we were going to face a much more difficult process, but actually that was quite clean cut in the end, actually. That's thank, really nice. Thank you, Mr. German authorities, I've got to say. Outside of the state process, this notion of transferring neighboring rights, selling them, assigning them, I would frame that by restating the rule that we see everywhere, everywhere you want to look, whether it's a, a law review article or lawyers you know, commenting on the nature of neighboring rights, et cetera. The rule that you, that you hear is no, neighboring rights that cannot be sold or transferred, inalienable, and that can't be done. Okay, so we understand the rule, quote unquote. But the rule doesn't seem to be followed in day-to-day practice. In the real world, I mean, we all see you know, almost daily these catalog acquisition announcements. And, and there was one, coincidentally enough, there was one just yesterday that was about BMG acquiring the rights to the Simple Minds catalog. It mentions publishing rights, royalties from recordings, and then it specifically calls out the band's neighboring rights. They were acquired by, by BMG. So I, I see that and I, I compare it to the rule, quote unquote, and it, it raises questions in my mind. The rule doesn't seem to be followed day to day. So how are these? I, I mean, this is a valid transaction. It has to be. BMG is not going to mess around with this stuff. They're well advised legally. So how are they accomplishing that in the face of the rule? You know, what what, what are people's impressions and experiences in this area? So you can't. You can sell a catalog and then the rights holder side does change hands. So the rights holder side is not in violation of the rule. On the performer side, you can only license your 
income from it. So it's not part of the sale per se, but you can say they will get their performer share directly and pay it over to you. What they do with their money once they receive it from PPL is their own business. I actually called Sound Exchange to ask them about this very thing, catalog acquisitions with respect to performer shares. And they related it to their legal team and they said that they do not allow that to happen, essentially. The performer share will always reside with the performer regardless of catalog acquisitions. Yes, the label share is what is being purchased, what I assume. However, like we don't know like the actual details of what's going on behind the scenes as well, but that is that's as much information as I have as well. The lawyer in me wants to dig and wants to find out how these how these transactions are formatted. I just I wonder if that might be a good opportunity for IFR going forward, kind of a call to action to figure out how these deals are getting done, how they're, how those are papered. You know, if there's a little something other than, than meets the eye when it comes to the transfer of a bands, because the simple minds situation is, is not a deal with, with a publisher or, or a label. It's only a deal with the band. So, and, and involves their neighboring rights. So what does that look like? You know, when, it, when you get down to the nitty gritty of that legal documentation and what's being assigned, I'd love to see that paperwork. And there, you can't find templates. You can't find those kind of deal docs. At least that, that's been my experience. So I wonder if going forward, we might be able to uh, get some interested members of IFR who would be willing to share that kind of documentation. I think it would be really useful. If we had it, I suspect it would be subject to attorney-client privilege for the lawyers or any kind of GDPR for the labels and the neighboring rights reps and the publishers. I think it would it would take a lot to get permission from the parties to the agreement. And you'd have to get permission from both parties. But I'm also not sure how I feel about that because I don't want to interfere with anybody's right to earn money from their own rights. And I don't want to call anybody out to say, this can't be done, this is unlawful, you did a bad deal. What do you think about that? Oh, I think it's so prevalent. You see these announcements, you know, weekly, it seems like, where they're buying catalog, catalog acquisitions occur and they have different flavors and shapes. But for artists, it's their label royalties. It may be their publishing. In a lot of cases, it's neighboring rights that kind of go along with the package. They're getting done. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious as to how, how they are getting done. You know, part of our role for our artists in particular is to advise them on on how they might enter into such transactions. You know, so as an information gathering, and I wouldn't be looking for any any particular agreement that would have, you know, parties attached to it. Uh, you know, you can find copyright assignments, you know, templates and so forth. But, you know, if we could see the same kind of thing just as a template, you know, what's the kind of magic language that these that attorneys are using to accomplish these kinds of transactions. I, I think that would be useful information for IFR members who could who are advising clients on these things. Cool. Noted. My guess right now is that it's just the rights holder share, but it'd be interesting to know if it wasn't. So if we can get that information, absolutely. Hypnosis just put out their annual report, which has information about what they're receiving and how much by income type. So Writer share performance, producer royalties, neighboring rights, 
I agree with Stacy. I have a feeling it is label share, but there might be instances where the label does receive both sides. And that might be a case where the sale is inclusive of the performer share simply because of the way that a specific country is set up to pay out neighboring rights royalties. That's a really good point. I know that there are some major labels in North America or in non-treaty countries where they have earned the rights and PPL will pay the rights holder, the performer share, because they don't qualify as a performer in that country. And then the label will keep the performer share. So it could be that that would be included as well. But again, IFR would argue that is unlawful in the absence of a written agreement. And that's the distinction that you do tend to hear is, well, the rights can't be assigned, but it's the income stream that's being assigned or acquired, if you will. Yeah, I'm curious to see what those deals look like going forward, because as, as you as you say, it, it is happening. Then the, the codicil or the, the wording in a will, if you take a step forward from that, if the rights are assigned or the income is transferred to an, an individual purchaser, then that person has to make very clear that their beneficiary or their beneficiary is, is, is able to claim those, those particular rights as well. So it gets more and more complicated the further down the road you get. Thank you so much for joining us, gentlemen. And thank you for joining us at home. Remember, if you're not already a member of IFR, go to www.iafar.co.uk and hit that Join Now button. Thanks for listening.